We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. Let's take our Bibles and turn to 1 John, please. Way in the back. 1 John. I'll give you a few moments to find that. James, 1, 2 Peter, 1 John, chapter 1. We'll be reading a few chapters in this segment of the text of Scripture in the coming weeks. Everybody got it? First John. Just a short chapter. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled, concerning the word of life. The life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness, and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you, that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. That fellowship is not just a good feeling of harmony, but it is the sharing of life in Christ that he's wanting for us to have, that fellowship that's with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Verse 4, And these things we write to you, that your joy may be full. This is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. 1 John chapter 1, verse number 6. Now we're going to see an, a series of alternating statements. Uh, we're going to say, we're going to see a negative and a positive, negative, positive, negative, okay? Uh, back and forth. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Notice that the person says one thing, but the truth is another. Verse 7, but in contrast to that negative, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say, notice again, if we say, we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say, notice again in the negative verse here, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Now, do we believe that? Yes, we do believe that. So there are times when people say one thing and actually the truth is another thing. 
And that's a sad situation. And it often comes with, uh, with um, hard-heartedness and rebuttals and uh, difficulties and uh, interpersonal problems and uh, lack of teachability. If somebody says they have not sinned, if somebody says they have no sin, if somebody says they have fellowship, they, but they actually do not. And uh, so John is really kind of laying out some pretty tough objectives here for us to look at. This is not just uh, you know, optional stuff that we're talking about. 1 John chapter 1. Let's turn our Bibles to uh, Luke's Gospel, please. Luke's Gospel. And the second chapter, I had a, a kind of a fun time with this uh, last uh, week because I shared with uh, in Luke chapter 2, the first verses there like we went over, I shared that with a few folks at American House and was able to give them a little taste of Christmas in September. And they just found that delightful. And uh, at the... Uh, at the end, the one lady, Jean, asked if we could sing a Christmas song. <laughs> so uh, which one was it? Uh, oh, I can't think of it now. She asked for Silent Night or another one. What was the other one? My wife would remember. Anyway, we sang the other one. and uh, Yeah. No, no. <laughs> oh, Holy Night is for my wife to sing. That's not for me to sing or be leading. So <laughs> anyway. Uh, good guess. Luke chapter 2, please. We're in verses 21 through 35. And uh, we saw last time the birth of our Savior, Mary, keeping all these things in her heart and pondering them. And then eight days later, it says in verse 21, and when eight days were completed for the circumcision of the child, his name was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Now, when the days of her, there's Mary's, purification according to the law of Moses were completed, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So he came by the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. And Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign which will be spoken against. Yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul also, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Luke has introduced us to uh, Zacharias, Elizabeth, Gabriel, the angel, Mary, Joseph, John the Baptist, Jesus, 
baby Jesus and the shepherds. Now he's going to bring another man into our viewport, and that is godly Simeon. Simeon offers for us a sterling example of character and conduct as he behaved regarding that first Christmas, we might say, so we ought to be now. He was a just man. He was a devout man, one who was anticipating the coming of the Messiah. And although we can't anticipate the first coming of the Messiah because that's done, we can appreciate it. And we can't anticipate the second coming of the Messiah, can we not? And so very similar to uh, Simeon, we may find ourselves and should find ourselves. He also was filled with the Holy Spirit. It tells us in chapter uh, 2 and verse number 25, the Spirit of God was upon him. Uh, He was right in his dealings with God and with men. And other people in the Bible are described in those same ways. And we should aspire to be like them. If we truly are that way, we hope we are, and we can be described as such. For instance, Enoch pleased God. Remember, he walked with God and he was not, for he had this testimony that he pleased God. Noah was a man of faith, so much faith that he built an ark for the saving of his household, despite not having seen the kind of event that was about to come. He obeyed God. He was righteous before God, the Bible tells us. Job was another one, blameless and upright. These are all models for us. We should live like these do. Abraham was a friend of God. God spoke with Moses as a man does with his friend. Stephen, Acts chapter 7, full of faith and the Holy Spirit. Barnabas, the Bible tells us in Acts 11, was a good man, full of faith and the Holy Spirit. David was a man after God's own heart, loyal to God. Then there was Zacharias and Elizabeth that we looked at recently who were righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments of the Lord and the ordinances of the Lord. In chapter 1 of Luke, we should also mention Abel and Joseph and Joshua and Caleb and Deborah and others we could probably find, but those are some of the highlights, some of the good kings in Israel also. But of all of these, only two saw the baby Jesus on this 40th day of his life as they brought him to the temple to dedicate him. One was Simeon, which will spend some time uh, getting to know today. The other was Anna, a woman who served God with fasting and prayer night and day, and that's in the next section of Luke's gospel. Let me just, as I kind of continue this uh, oddly timed series uh, of you know Christmas in September, as I joked earlier, uh, I asked this question about the work of the Lord and about Christmas. Is Christmas really about giving? And let me uh, reiterate this as I did some years ago in our assembly. Usually the passage like this is read at Christmas time and the holiday conjures up images of giving and how it should impact us. And the idea that we get sometimes is God gave, so we too should give. But are we, a couple questions about that. First of all, are we really giving like God gave? Or is our giving altogether different in character and motivation? When we give gifts to one another, are we really giving as an example of God-like behavior? 
Is our practice connected to his practice of giving? Are we supporting the weak in our giving, like in Acts chapter 20, more blessed to give than to receive? Or are we modeling how Christ became poor so that we could become rich, 2 Corinthians 8, 9? Are we giving to those who have need, like the poor among the saints in Jerusalem, which is an example in numerous places in Scripture? Are we really honoring Christ in our, in our giving Christmas celebrations? That's one question. But thinking a little deeper, is the idea that God gave so we give, is that complete? Is that accurate? Is it even right? Is this how we really should think about Christmas? My contention is no, because it skips over a whole lot between the statement God gave, therefore we give, There's a bunch in the middle that it leaves out. The simple statement skips over critical elements of the equation, making the work of God and Christ a mere example of philanthropic giving meant to induce us to give. The world of Christendom is rife with this notion that Christmas is about having a giving spirit. But Christ's incarnation and subsequently his death was not just an example It was far more than an example. It was a payment of a penalty. It was a punishment for moral wrongdoing, mine and yours. Christ's death does indeed instruct us what real giving looks like, but it goes much farther. There are parts of the equation in the middle. God gave, we should give, but in the middle, God gave in order to save us from our sin in order to make us righteous, in order to give us eternal life, in order to transform our character so that we would be like Christ and giving like he was. So the liberal gospel will do this this with this idea. They'll say, well, God gave, so we give, and they cut out the middle because they don't want to hear about the death of Christ, the sinfulness of humanity, the need for eternal life, the punishment of, 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 of our sin upon Christ, any kind of penalty any kind of punishment, you know, in a society that a timeout is about as the worst kind of punishment that you can get. We don't want to hear about this, I say collectively. But we do as Christians because we are so grateful that God gave to save us from sin, to transform us, to make us righteous, to provide eternal life, and thus to make us act in a holy, loving, forgiving, giving manner. The example theory of the atonement I've been kind of tackling here leaves out the middle steps there in that equation and just takes the first and the last, skipping the middle, and it does does terrible injustice to the gospel. Those middle things to save us from sin and make us righteous and give us eternal life, those are absolutely essential for the proper understanding that Christ came to die in our place for sin to save us from death. And Simeon knew this. He used language that was coordinate with this. He talked about salvation. You know, Christmas to him was more than a warm, fuzzy, holiday-giving spirit. He saw the very salvation of God to rescue people from evil, their own, and that around them, and also the oppression that comes upon them from being in a sin-cursed society. So, big picture. Let's not miss that. Background. Circumcision and the consecration or dedication that happens here. Verse 21 
says, when the eight days were completed for the circumcision of the child. This goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 17. You remember we studied Genesis, and now 17, chapter 17 has been so far long past, you probably may have forgotten it. But in that chapter, God gives a sign of the Abrahamic covenant. And that sign is circumcision to all the males who are born into the Hebrew family. And uh, that was to be done, according to Genesis 17, 12, on the eighth day of the life of the young child. The uh, angel also uh, had directed in Matthew 1 and Luke 1 what the child was to be named. And evidently, they uh, coincided the naming of the baby with the circumcision. So there's kind of a, a, uh, an official thing there going on at eight days. The baby has survived past the first week of its life and uh, is given a name and is circumcised if it's a boy child. And, they say, and it says, and his name was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And so that's after eight days. But there's another purification, or I should say another ritual that is involved with purification that happens after a number of other days. And uh, we see this in Leviticus chapter 12, where the law gives this uh, instruction. So I'm going to turn there in Leviticus 12. This ancient text was yet relevant to the people of Israel, and Jesus' parents were following what the law said. Uh, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, Leviticus 12, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, If a woman is conceived and born a male child, and she shall be unclean seven days, as in the days of her customary impurity, she shall be unclean. And on the eighth day the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. She shall then continue in the blood of her purification 33 days. She shall not touch any hallowed thing, nor come into the sanctuary until the days of her purification are fulfilled." And then it talks about if she bears a female child and she be unclean two weeks as in her customary impurity, and then she shall continue for 66 days. So both time frames are doubled in that case. So they brought him to Jerusalem at the end of this period of what I take it to be 8 and 33, which if you add is 41, but I think it's 40 days. It's 40 or it's 80. And uh, so they brought him at the 40-day mark, as we read in Leviticus chapter 12. And uh, so about 33 days, just over four weeks, four and a half, almost five weeks after the circumcision, the mother and father would come to the temple. This was for every firstborn child. And they would offer, we didn't read that in the Old Testament, but they would make an offering there. The text here does tell us every male who opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. Remember the whole deal about the firstborn in Israel? Well, remember the firstborn in Egypt and the plague and the firstborn in Israel and God took the Levites instead of the firstborn and the firstborn are redeemed, the firstborn of animals given to the Lord, children, of course, not sacrificed, so they were redeemed as the text tells us there. Uh, with this sacrifice and uh, with some shekels as well. In any case, um, the instruction here, I want to kind of clarify this because you're probably wondering what is going on with this cleanness and uncleanness and all of that. The cleanness of 
uh, of or uncleanness of having a child and uh, and cleansing are for the mother, not for the child. Okay, so and I'm trying to say that to say this because Jesus was completely clean and had no part in any ceremonial defilement because he was sinless. So the instruction does not indicate that a ch- the child is a sinner, though every child except Jesus is a sinner. <laughs> okay. But that's not the point here. It does not indicate also that reproduction is sinful because it's commanded by God. Okay, so what what is it then? With with childbirth, there's not only blood, but also, as I understand it, parents are responsible for bringing another sinful person into the world. Of course, not in this particular case. And and then you might ask, well, why the the twice as long for a girl as for a, a boy. Well, a girl brought with her the stigma of Eve's disobedience against God, perhaps thus requiring the longer length of impurity, and the fact that she was probably going to bring in other sinful children into the world when she was of age. But none of this is an issue under the law of Christ, is it? After a childbirth, we don't have a special atonement service, a special ceremonial cleansing service in the church for the birth of a child. No such instruction is given uh, in the the Bible. We do have this example I find interesting that they brought him to the temple. And uh, over the years, we haven't done this lately. Uh, We haven't had a request to do so. But over the years, we've had baby dedication service in which we thank God for the provision of life and a new child and a, a new baby and a family. Some have a a principled objection to that. I personally don't because Jesus was presented at the temple and dedicated to the Lord. And uh, there's nothing wrong with what they did with him. And I don't think there's anything wrong with us doing that either. We are very clear that we don't do infant baptism. We're not confused about a child being brought into the covenant somehow by some action or some grace being imputed to the child. That's not the case. The child dedication service is a way of saying thanks to God for this child and also praying and uh, dedicating ourselves as parents in a church to raising that child and and, uh, helping them grow in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Under the Mosaic Law, in chapter 13 of Exodus, the firstborn male child was specifically designated by God to be his. Not mom and dad's first, but God's. Uh, Holy means set apart to the Lord. And it says that in verse 23, every Male who opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. So set apart, not morally pure necessarily. Of course, Jesus was both set apart and morally pure. So Jesus was circumcised, and he was also consecrated to God. And this included an offering of five shekels of silver to redeem the child, as it were, to buy back the child in a way from God's possession, according to Exodus 13. All the firstborn of Israelite animals and people belonged to the priests as their support, and uh, firstborn animals could be sacrificed, but obviously, as I said, not children. So a price was paid to the, to the priests. Now, a modern-day uh, equivalent of that five shekels of silver would be something around $45, just to give you an idea of that, kind of a tax, if you will. Joseph and Mary followed these Old Testament laws from Leviticus and Exodus just as God had instructed. Um, by the way, it seems as if they, it seems clear, it is clear, that they did so out of poverty. 
because they did not offer a lamb and a bird as was the first option in the law, but they offered what? Two turtle doves, a pair of turtle doves or a pair of young pigeons. So God did not send the Messiah into the lap of luxury. He sent the Messiah into a family that was a working class, could I say, a blue-collar, not very well-off family. That's where his life started. Fitting, isn't it? As I said last time, he was born, placed in a manger. He came in lowly birth. He was a lowly savior, meek and lowly. He was gentle and uh, knows the pains of people in that situation. God sends sent his son to a humble abode, a humble existence, because that's what he was about. He was not about wealth and riches and the things of this world, but the things of the next. Let me also mention um, this point. Maybe this is obvious to us, but... Uh, I wanted to emphasize that if you're a parent, this text instructs me that birth is not just a medical event in the life of a family. God is interested in birth. He's interested in new life. He's interested in the propagation of the human race. He's interested in be fruitful and multiply. He has a concern about the shedding of blood during a baby's birth and the uncleanness that is a result of that. It's not just a medical event in your life to have a child. It's a religious event. Now, I I think maybe we, we might kind of pass over that and we sort of think, you know, to the end of life, it's easier at the end when we have a funeral here with a casket or we're at the graveside of somebody to think about spiritual things when we think about death. But that person that died, it's in the casket that we're burying, which will be us someday if the Lord doesn't return soon. He will return, but maybe not in our lifetime. But every one of those people who was in that casket is a person who was born to some mom and some dad on this planet. And that's really where the religious significance of life begins. It doesn't just begin, you know, when they get to be seven or eight years old and can understand the gospel. It's all the way through. Whether you fully understand the Levitical code and the law in Exodus and the purification rituals and how they did this at the temple, we can understand that God is connecting birth to a religious and spiritual meaning. We do not have the specific regulations of the law of Moses, but we still do have its principles And childbirth today is no less significant than it was back then. We might tend to think of death that way, but at conception and birth, a new life is started. A a soul comes into existence. A sinner is born. When a new baby is conceived and born, you have just changed eternity because that baby is going to be somewhere forever. So that's a massive thing that has occurred, okay? The least we can do is to recognize that God has given life and we can thank him and we can do so with our family and friends and church. Birth announcements function this way in, in a way. You know how we, how, how did you announce the birth of a child years ago? Anybody remember, anybody, anybody of you have your name in the newspaper, local newspaper? when you were born? Yeah? 
Now, that's a, that's a statement of the family. So, you know, such and such was born to so and so family and, re, you know, rejoice with them. Thank God for that. We don't do the newspaper today, of course, but postcard type mailings and social media and email to our family and pictures and all of that, dedication services in church and so on. Great ways to rejoice together and to announce a birth. And a church service, perhaps, to say thank you, God, for this new child? I mean, why do we have a service when somebody dies, but not when they're born? I mean, that's a great blessing, isn't it? It's just, yeah, it's marvelous. So we think about that. We should, and and connect the religious significance of birth and how they handled it for the Lord Jesus and how we should as well. Now, we get finally to Simeon, who was to be the main character of our message today. Simeon saw a number of things, starting in verse 29. We, we see the background of Simeon. I mentioned him. The Spirit of God had shown him that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Can you imagine the anticipation of him? Every day, perhaps, wondering, is today the day that I'm going to walk into the temple and I'm going to see the salvation of God in the face of a little baby, or somehow, maybe he didn't even understand how that would work, but I I suspect he did. He must have known that a virgin would conceive and bear a child and be called Emmanuel. You know, if we we think that people, godly people back then were, were just kind of dull, we need to think again. Probably a lot smarter than most of us about the Old Testament and about what it meant In verse 26, uh, we're told that he would live until he saw the Messiah. Somehow, Simeon supernaturally is given the knowledge that God's promise has been fulfilled. He has seen the Messiah uh, for whom he has been waiting so patiently. He was awaiting for the consolation of Israel. He was awaiting for Isaiah 40. Comfort, yes, comfort to my people Israel, God says, and Isaiah 66 as well. So how could Simeon respond other than praise? Brother and sister, what are you going to do when you see the Messiah's face for the first time? Yeah. Cry or rejoice all at the same time and be thankful and not know what to say. But he'll already know what's in your heart. This little baby, I don't think Jesus came out of the womb talking, okay? He, he learned talking like the rest of children learn talking somehow in that mystery of the incarnation, but Simeon was able to see him for the first time. Huh. Simeon di- most certainly died during Jesus' lifetime. You think about that. And so the next time that Simeon saw him, I mean, maybe he saw maybe he saw him other times coming to the temple. I don't know. His parents came every year. But maybe he died that same year. And the next time he saw the Messiah was when Jesus entered back into heaven and Simeon was there. I don't know. That's big thinking there, big ideas. God fulfills all of his promises, dear friends, and he fulfilled this one to Simeon. He promises to us promises as well, life in Christ Jesus to those who believe, 
And he will make good on that promise, just like he made good on the promise to Simeon here. Simeon had great relief, great joy. Now, it tells us that Simeon saw some things. He says he took him up in his arms and blessed God. And it says that he saw salvation, verse number 30. For my eyes have seen your salvation. This salvation was deliverance in all aspects, in physical and spiritual. Remember Zacharias' Benedictus in which he reflected on the salvation of God from enemies and by the remission of sins. So he had both physical and spiritual dimensions there as well. We concentrate on the spiritual dimensions, though, of course, because we are not the nation of Israel. We're the church. We're a different thing. The focus of Simeon was, though, not so much on the deliverance itself, but on the person of the deliverance. His focus was on the little baby. This person, listen, this person is salvation himself. He is the salvation of God. He is not ancillary. He is not supplementary. He is not extra or secondary to salvation. He's not just the guy that did the heavy lifting and then departed and went off to the side to let you alone for the rest of the work. Christ is, was, and always will be salvation. That's why we say when, when you believe, we don't just believe facts about Jesus. We believe into him. I don't know how to say the difference. Yes, we can believe Jesus died and he rose again from the dead and he ascended to heaven. You might say, well, yeah, that's what Christians believe. And I, I can buy that. I can believe those facts. But what is it, what is it to me? It's a totally different thing to say, I am fully vested in him. My loyalty is switched from myself to Jesus. He is my God and Savior. He is my Lord. I acknowledge that God raised him from the dead, and in that rising is my rising from sin and from death. Salvation is the response of the whole person to the whole Christ not just the facts of him or the warm, fuzzy feelings about giving because he's giving. You know, he's a giving person, so we're giving. It's more, more, more than that. If we are to experience salvation, we must meet Jesus too, not just accept a few facts as true about his death and resurrection. We are believing into him. If we believe in Jesus Christ, then we will be saved. God gave his only begotten son that whoever believes, not about him, in him, in him, that's what it is. Simeon's spiritual perception thus challenges us. He saw things beyond what was necessarily just in the physical appearance. When we look around here, for instance, we might think of the furniture and the decorations and and the paint and the and the wood beam ceilings and all of that and say, well, this sort of looks like a church. I mean, it's got a cross up in the front and it's got a pulpit there and a little platform and pews and there are chairs where people sit and all of that. But the first century Christian would never have seen it that way and Simeon wouldn't have seen it that way. The church is not a building, as we've often said. Born-again believers are the church. It's when you look there and if you could just kind of in your mind just Photoshop out 
the carpet, the walls, the ceiling, the chairs, and just see the people. That's what the church is. And that's the kind of perception that Simeon had. He sees the salvation of God. He doesn't see the swaddling cloths necessarily. He sees the glory of the Messiah in the face of Jesus, the baby. Some perceive Jesus as merely a model or an example for us or a good man or a teacher or a rabbi. Proper spiritual perception, however, makes it clear that Jesus is far more than that. He is salvation itself. Are your eyes tuned in to that frequency of the electromagnetic spectrum? You know what I mean? That you're seeing Jesus for who he is? that you're seeing spiritual salvation for what it is. Simeon saw, rightly, salvation was before him in his very arms as he held that baby and blessed God. Simeon saw a worldwide Savior. Look at chapter 2, verse 31 to 32, which you have prepared before the face of all peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. The salvation that he saw was before the face of all peoples. We can put aside immediately the, fact, the idea that salvation is just for a select few or one ethnic group and not another. That's not at all true. It's before the face of all peoples, every tribe, every tongue, every language, every kindred on this terrestrial ball, as it were. Jesus provides salvation to all the nations, and this was done in front of everyone not hidden. Luke chapter 3, John the Baptist says, all flesh shall see the salvation of God. So he saw a worldwide Savior in the salvation prepared before the face of all peoples, but Simeon also saw the Messiah as a light of revelation for the Gentiles. Jesus said in John 8, 12, do you remember that verse? John 8, 12, about light. I am the light of the world. If any man walks after me, he will not walk in darkness. People, listen, this world is dark. It's dark. You see the darkness of disaster, you see the darkness of the political wisdom of the world. You see the darkness of indoctrination to the young people. You see the darkness in the media you see everywhere. You see it in movies or wherever. Darkness everywhere. Prophetic passages in the Bible talk of him. Those who dwelt in great darkness saw a great light. Zebulun and Naphtali, Galilee of the Gentiles, saw that great light walk in among them when Jesus, 30 years later, when he walked into that place in Capernaum and surrounding areas and ministered the word of God to the people. Light is the opposite of darkness as holiness is the opposite of evil. Many sit in that darkened state today and do not see the light of Christ. In fact, uh, I think that's why people are so hopeless Ephesians 4.18, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their hearts, being past feeling have given themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanness with greediness, but 
you have not so learned Christ. This revelation is the revelation of God himself to the peoples who sit in great darkness. Simeon also saw not only a salvation prepared openly before the face of all peoples and a salvation which was a light to the, for the Gentiles, but he also saw in the Messiah the glory of the people Israel. See that at the end of verse number 32? There is no Jew who is more glorious than the Messiah. Okay? There are a lot of wonderful Jewish people. Listen, hear me. Done many wonderful things for the world. Very accomplished, smart, blessed by God is how I would say it. But there's no one more famous, no one certainly who provided salvation than Jesus. He is the Jew of all Jews, of of all that the Jewish people have given to the world, which is significant. And I'm thinking religiously, primarily, the Jew. What, to, you know, of what use Paul says is it for the Jewish people? I mean, they, well, much in every way. I mean, of, from them came the prophets and the oracles of God and the temple and the service and the Messiah. Everything that the world has of a, of spiritual significance came out of the nation of of Israel. But Jesus is the pinnacle, the most glorifying to God. And when he took on flesh, the Bible says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So Simeon saw some things, and Simeon also now prophesied a few things as well. These are the last verses, chapter 2, 34 and 35. Simeon blessed the parents. He blessed God first earlier in in verse 29. Then he blessed the parents. And he said to Mary, his mother. Mothers have such a special place. (laughs) And as we understand, dad was not in the picture 33 years later when his son died. He was a victim of that. Remember that life? Expectancy that I told you about what last time, a couple couple messages ago, 35 to 45 years old, and, and that's it. 33 more years, he wasn't going to make it. Mary maybe is a young woman in her mid or late teens. Well, add 33 years to that, that's going to put her nigh to 50. She's going to be quite elderly in, in, in that time. Simeon prophesied to her, this child is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel. Jesus is the watershed. Could I say it that way? He's the, he's the, he's the infinitely thin fence upon which no one can sit. It's either you're on one side or you're on the other side of this fence. Now, after undoubtedly reveling in the moment of holding this baby and blessing God and saying those initial words, he, he turned to, his, to Jesus' parents and offered a blessing to them. And boy, would they need a blessing. They were still bewildered as to how it is, at, you know, six, seven weeks along, how are we going to raise the child who is going to be the Savior of the world? of all these strange things that have happened to us. And yet to come, Herod was going to seek the young child to destroy him. And they had to go flee to Egypt for a while, who knows, months or a year or two. 
And finally, they returned from Egypt. Many difficult months lie ahead of them for the new family with very little financial means. A special blessing to them would certainly be an encouragement. Simeon prophesied that Christ would be the revealer of hearts. What does that mean? That means that when you bring the truth of Jesus to someone, just practically today speaking, you bring the truth of Jesus to them, by your response, you will know what's in their heart. You will know. Hatred, love, you know, uh, an inquiring kind of attitude or, or, or one that just outright rejects him. This child is destined for the fall and the rising of many in Israel and for a sign which will be spoken against. Many Jews will fall when they fail to believe in him. After all, the Bible says he's a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. That's said several times in the scriptures. The falling comes by being disobedient to the message of Christ and thus being judged by God. These are the same ones that treat Christ like a sign to be spoken against. Maybe, uh, you know, because Jesus did all these signs, you might think a sign to be spoken against, but really it seems that Christ himself is the sign in this text, a signal of God's salvation, and yet he will be spoken against. You remember how they spoke to him when he was on the cross? You remember what they said to Pilate when he was before them, crucify him? And they mocked him as he hung on the cross and mocked him when he was dressed in a purple robe with a a crown of thorns upon his head. They spoke against that sign. The opposition came out in the open when they called for his crucifixion and mocked him on the cross, showing their absolute rejection of Jesus Christ. On the other hand, on the other hand, many will rise because of him. This means they will receive the blessing of eternal life. That the scripture tells us that uh, we who are in Christ are, are seated in the heavenly places with him as he rules high above all authority and power, ultimately in rising to a new life. This is the consistent testimony of scripture, my friends. Way back 2,500 years ago or so, in Daniel chapter 12, it says, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. You see that there's just a twofold outcome, one way or the other, rising and falling, receiving and rejecting. The result of the life and ministry of Christ, that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. Your response to Christ and to his suffering, whether you accept him or reject him, opens the window onto your heart. You see that? That the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. There's no neutral ground here, either for or against. Simeon also prophesied Mary's grief. Mary's grief. The treatment of her son throughout his life. We're not told anything from this time until he was 30, except for when he was 12 in that instance in the temple. Very, um, you know, a good reputation there. Uh, Remarkable young man. 
But who knows, who knows the kind of trouble that he faced in his life, the misunderstanding from peers and the difficulties that he may have faced as a young boy. But then for her to see him treated like he was by the religious leaders, didn't they understand that this one was born when Mary was a virgin and had to be a miracle child? She stood by and watched him crucified like a common criminal. What would her thoughts be? Pained, Pained in the heart would hardly describe the depth of grief that she would experience. She would be stricken down with grief and pain as if somebody was cutting her soul out with a sword. To achieve the rising of many in Israel, he would suffer the scorn of many others, even down to the present day. There would be much suffering, not just glory. The sufferings of Christ first, and then the glories that follow. Yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul also, Mom, for your son who would die for many. Well, if we believe like Simeon and we live like him, we will do well. His standard was righteousness toward men and devoutness toward God. And I want to add that if we would see Jesus as Simeon saw him, we will also do well. He saw salvation right before his eyes. He saw suffering in Christ's future and salvation for those who trust in him. He saw Jesus as the test, litmus test for people's hearts, whether they would believe and rise or reject and fall. Indeed, Jesus is a refuge to those who trust in him, but he also is a stone of stumbling to those who do not trust in him. Heavenly Father, as we finish now, I pray that our Savior will be a refuge, a rock for us in this life. Lord, if anyone here is rejecting him, would you please catch them up short? Would you please minister in their souls and Spare them from the judgment to come. Lord, help us to see things as Simeon did with eyes more tuned to the spiritual wavelengths. To see the salvation of God and to see those things that are important in life and not just the trappings, the accoutrements, the the Christmas gifts, so to speak, but to see in Christ Christmas himself. We pray in his name. Amen.